In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. I've learned over the years that whenever I'm cooking and Filipinos are coming, whether it's a full meal or a party or just dessert, I need to plan for leftovers. It's just part of it. And I've kind of gotten the hang of it. Near the end of the event, whatever it is, I simply take out the Ziplocs and the empty takeout containers and place them near the food. Magic happens. <laughs> Leftovers leave and everybody's happy. The Bible doesn't say if Filipinos were there among the thousands who were fed. But one thing is sure. Jesus planned for leftovers. From the bounty and abundance, through the miracle of multiplication, all were fed. The scripture says, from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, the disciples filled twelve baskets. Well, if you think about it, if you remember anything about Jesus, this isn't really all that unusual. Wherever he goes, there seems to be multiplication. There is more. At Cana, he makes the water into wine and it flows freely. On the Sea of Galilee with the disciples, he tells them, don't give up yet, just cast on the other side of the boat. And then fish are suddenly everywhere. And now, here on the other side of Galilee, Jesus does it again. He enlarges, he expands, he transforms a little bit into a whole lot. For the feast to happen, for there to be extra, Jesus does three things. First, he has a vision. He can imagine people being fed. He can see what it looks like for everybody to have enough. Last week, the church read Mark's gospel. And if you noticed, we left a chunk out. We skipped over Mark's version of the feeding of the thousands. Had we read Mark's version, or for that matter, had we read Matthew or Luke's, we would have seen a real difference between Jesus and the disciples because the disciples show an incredible lack of vision. They don't see what's possible. The disciples look out and see a hungry crowd and they see a problem. And what's more, they see it as God's problem, not theirs. The disciples in no way identify with the hungry masses. But today's version of the story is a little different. According to John, it's Jesus who sees the people's need. And then Jesus almost quizzes the disciples to kind of test their vision. For Jesus, the vision is real. Even though Jesus probably doesn't know exactly how the vision will be fully achieved. And so the first step in planning for leftovers is having a vision. Next, Jesus shares that vision. He shares it with others. He makes clear that he needs help. And so he invites other people into that vision. Turning to Philip, Jesus says, where are we to buy bread? And Philip responds a lot like those disciples in the other Gospels, as Philip says, well, six months' wages wouldn't buy enough. 
Notice how Philip responds, how Philip talks about money. Philip's a realist among the disciples. He knows what it is to earn a wage. He knows the market. And even though he might be good with numbers, he's slow to catch the vision of Jesus. Andrew, on the other hand, is a little quicker. Andrew catches the vision of Jesus And then he shares it. He looks around and he sees a boy who has very little, but he has something. And so Andrew invites the boy into the vision. And so the boy has a couple of fish and a couple of loaves. Sharing in the vision of Christ, Andrew sees possibility. Like Jesus, Andrew doesn't know how the vision will turn out. He doesn't know how the whole thing will be accomplished. But he sees the boy and has a hunch that this is a part of moving forward. So first, there's the vision of people being fed. Then invitations go out to enlist the help of everybody. And then there's a third piece to this process toward leftovers. Jesus prays. The fact that Jesus prays might seem like an obvious detail. It's tempting to see Jesus' prayer as a sort of stop in the story or a slowdown in the action. But it's really just the opposite. Prayer is action on steroids. Prayer is action in high gear. Prayer is concentrated effort. It's energy condensed and channeled and directed to God. St. John Vianney was a 19th century priest known for his holiness and simplicity. People used to line up a mile to say confessions because they appreciated his wisdom. St. John Vianney would say, prayer, private prayer is like scattered straw here and there. If you set it on fire, it makes a lot of little flames. But you gather these straws into a bundle and light them, you get a mighty fire rising like a column into the sky. Public prayer is like that. Everything on fire. This is what happens when Jesus prays in front of other people. People notice the quality and the focus and the love of his prayer. The disciples see him and they add their prayers. And then the other people see the disciples praying and they add their prayers. And on and on it goes as priorities shift in prayer. That's what happens in prayer. My will, our will, is transformed in God's presence into our hunger, the world's hunger, the world's hope, the world's desire. Things get larger through prayer. In praying to God, Jesus is also reminding himself and everybody else that the work they're about to do, this this multiplication of bread and fish, is not really their work at all. It's God's work in which they are privileged to share. Everybody is fed. There are fragments left over. Often there are fragments left over in life, and the leftovers are important Sometimes they're tangible fragments and leftovers like the extra bread and the fish the disciples are able to put into baskets, but other times the leftovers can be overlooked. They're subtle, they're abstract. Faith might be left behind, increased faith. There might be an expanded sense of family or community. Individuals who previously had no sense of calling After a vision is shared and prayed over, they might find an entirely new vocation. 
There might be a fragmented joy at simply having accomplished something together in the presence of God, something larger and mightier than than two or a bunch or any sum could ever accomplish. Frederick Buechner says this is a miracle. It's a miracle when the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It's a miracle when one plus one equals a thousand or several thousands, as in today's gospel. The Church of England documented the importance of fragments of spiritual leftovers a couple of years ago in a a wonderful study that's called Faithful Cities. It's a report that especially celebrates the ministries of smaller churches and encourages them, encourages us, to notice what we're doing, to celebrate the ministries that we have and that we share. And they call this Faithful Capital. Many of us are familiar with the term of social capital. Well, this is faithful capital. As the report defines it, it's that thing that is increased as communities of faith make a decisive and positive difference in their neighborhoods through the values they promote, the service they inspire, and the resources they command. People are watching. And what they see can be a leftover for good. Holy leftovers become faithful capital through what one person has called a thousand tiny empowerments. What a wonderful goal, a thousand tiny empowerments. Planning for leftovers is hard. It's hard work and sometimes it goes against our very nature. We're taught to conserve and to be careful, to be thrifty, especially in seasons of scarcity. Play it safe. Don't anticipate, don't overextend. Expectations, after all, lead to resentments. On and on it can go, the caution and the fear. But as people of faith, we need to remember that this kind of caution can sometimes lead to what some call a mentality of maintenance. That is to say that if our chief motivation as a church, as a people, as a family... It becomes maintaining what we have and no more. Then before long, we're on a sad, long road that leads from a people who are called into mission to being a museum. And from being a museum to being a mausoleum. That's not to say that maintenance and mission are mutually exclusive. They're not for most churches. Both are part of our being a people of God. At All Souls, we have this beautiful old building. There would be nothing faithful if we were to all of a sudden let it fall apart. But at the same time, we're invited to envision and invite and pray about how we can be more, more involved in our community and the world, more engaged with issues, more responsive to the needs of those who hunger physically and spiritually. At All Souls, we've been doing some of this. Some of it is very tangible. With our addition for accessibility and hospitality, the vision took a while. It took a long time. It took praying and listening, talking, and a little bit of arguing. It took some dreaming. It took a lot of looking at reality and looking in the mirror. But as we developed a vision, we began to share it, and we invited others in and new insights were gained. We were improved 
over and over again, there were choices, choices between doing only that which might serve our needs and doing a little extra, which would include others. When an idea came up for enclosing our back garden in what looked to be a beautiful cloister, someone spoke up early and said, no, 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 no. To enclose the garden, that's not what we want to do. We want to open up and have the community come in and see what we're doing and want to join us. I said, amen, quietly. I wrote the person their check later. No, no, no. When the idea came up for opening up our undercroft, our social space, in a new way, people said, yes, that's what we need to do. We need to invite other groups in for for rehearsals and for meetings and for social events and all sorts of things. We need to share. And then, of course, from the very beginning, it was tempting some days just to, to slap a box with an elevator on the side of the building, expand one restroom and call it a day, be done with it. Happily, everyone thundered forth, no. We owe it to our ancestors to preserve and further the beauty that is this place and to build not only for ourselves, but for the future, for those who are to come. And so we have built in such a way that there are going to be leftovers. And we may not even ever meet some of those who will enjoy them. I was reminded of this recently in a note I received in the mail. I'm not making it up. I can show it to you if you want to see it. The young woman wrote and explained that last summer she had been an intern in Washington. And she had come to All Souls three times. I didn't recognize her name. I don't think she wrote it down or gave it to us. But she said she loved this place. It was the very time that she needed God most and she felt something, something she couldn't name, wasn't ready to name, didn't need to name. But she went back to school, finished up. She graduated. She's in another city now. She has a job. And she remembered that experience of being here. She found an Episcopal church. She joined it. And now she's a part of their homeless ministry. She's happy. She enclosed a small check for our ministry. That's what holy leftovers look like. As the Holy Spirit allows them to multiply and God's mission unfolds in us and in the world. At the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus again took bread. He broke it. He shared it. He prayed with it. We do the same. We do the same at this altar. We do the same at tables in the undercroft or at restaurants and homes or wherever we take the faith of Jesus Christ and share the feast. May the Holy Spirit enable us to move with God's vision, to invite others to say our prayers and always, always, always plan for leftovers. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.